Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. And welcome back to the latest episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowder. And today we have with us Brigadier General Retired Greg Bowen. If you don't know General Bowen, he was the last Deputy J3, well, his last job, I should say. He was the Deputy J3 at Stratcom. He was also the first commander of the 49th. Missile Defense Battalion at Fort Greeley. Uh, you know, he'd be a plank holder if he were if he were a Navy guy like me. Uh, I was a plank holder of the USS Ramage. I bet you didn't know that, Greg. I did not know. <laughs> he was also one of the lead planners uh, for Operation Burnt Frost, where in 2008 uh, we brought down an ISR satellite. Uh, we demonstrated to the Chinese that we could do what they did. And then uh, he became famous at Stratcom for dropping some choice language when speaking to the SecDef press pool, which if you've dealt with the press pool, uh, I can imagine there's a lot of folks who uh, would like to use colorful language. So I'm with you. But he's also an all-around good guy, and I'm glad to have him on the show from the far north of North Dakota, where he is a hobby farmer and has some interesting uh, hobbies these days. And, you know, I think he's your, your uh, effort to grow snow this winter is that that's going pretty well, isn't it? I, I think the it's a, it's a successful endeavor right now. Absolutely. Yeah. We've, we've got a bumper crop going right now. Actually, I was harvesting some snow off my driveway just yesterday and we've got another six to 12 inches coming in today. So I'll be, uh, I'll be out on my John Deere later. <laughs> so, you know, all, all, uh, fun aside, we want to talk about some serious issues. And one of those is I want to start with your time at Stratcom where you work to operationalize deterrence. Tell us about that and what you did to achieve that. Sure. So just to give you a little bit of context, um, my job is the deputy J3. So the, the J3 is a, a two-star, and there were three one-star deputies uh, beneath him. One of them uh, just did all electronic warfare stuff, and uh, that individual was a reservist, so he wasn't there all the time. So really there were two of us active duty. Um, the J3N, which is the person that handled all of the nuclear stuff, and the deputy J3, which was me. And so I had the space, the missile defense, the cyber, all the SAP program stuff. That was kind of my portfolio within the J3. But I, because I was the deputy, if the, if the two-star was gone, I was the J3. So I had to know all the stuff, all the, all the nuclear business um, as well. So it was a very broad, uh, really interesting job for me um, to finish out my career. Um, so in terms of operationalizing, I'd, I'd 
I was a bit of a deterrence geek uh, before I got to Stratcom. It's something I had been thinking about and studying for uh, 10 years prior to that, going back to when I was in the war college. And uh, so I got to Stratcom, and um, the first thing I had to do was get qualified on the nuclear mission. And the way that they work it there, um, the commander obviously is um, is the primary person who would brief the president on on the nuclear options. Uh, but if for whatever reason um, the commander's not available, there was a a, a roster of us uh, general and flag officers below him that had to get certified to to do that mission. So the first thing I had to do was get certified as a um, they call it a, a designated command alternate or DCA. Uh, so I had to go through the the training pipeline to do that, and then concurrently I had to qualify as an airborne emergency action officer. So I could fly on the Abincap, the Stratcom uh, Airborne Command Post, uh, which is uh, really fascinating. Going through a flight physical when you're in your 50s was was pleasant. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, so that I got called on all that stuff and, and began to practice uh, the the dark art of, of nuclear deterrence. Um, but more broadly, we we spent a lot of time um, thinking about messaging and what are some of the things we should be doing to to telegraph to a potential adversary what it is we uh, we don't want them to do. What do we want to deter them from doing? And we did this in a variety of ways. We planned um, a lot of bomber task force missions. So we'd fly B-52s up north, um, and the Russians do the same thing to us when they fly their bears down the coast of, of uh, Alaska. Um, we would we would set up port calls for the the ballistic missile submarines, and they would all of a sudden appear somewhere and um, Yep, here we are. Uh, so there's a lot of messaging kinds of things that we worked on um, and, and then executed those operations. And one of the um, more difficult um, concepts that we were trying to work through, and, and, and I think the, the department has really embraced this integrated deterrence concept, and we were, we were doing the same thing back then, but in a, in a different, we didn't call it that. But... Um, how do you deter an adversary in space? If their satellite starts to get a little too close to one of ours, what, what do we do? What does that look like? What is, how do you define hostile intent in space? And similarly in cyberspace. Um, so we were working through a lot of those um, really thorny kind of policy issues to figure out how do we expand deterrence from just kinetic to, to kind of other realms. Well, let me ask you two questions. First, as as you would message, and this is this is a question I've had much of my career as I've worked these same issues, and and it's something I've worked with Stratcom on, and that is as you message, how do you effectively evaluate whether your message, you know, achieved its desired objective? Because that's a you know, and I, I actually talked to the State Department about how do they measure the effectiveness of their efforts? And, you know, the, the response I got was, well, we, we, and this is from Stades and it was, well, we, we know how many parties we go to and how many engagements we have. And that's, you know, the more, the better. And, but it, it didn't really get at, you know, how did it shape the thought of, of an adversary? Cause if deterrence occurs in the minds of an adversary, then how do we measure that? So were, were there things that you guys did that tried to get at measuring the effectiveness of your messaging? 
Yeah, I, I, I'm not going to tell you we were entirely successful at that. There, there was a lot of coordination um, with our J2, um, helping them develop the intel indicators that they should be looking for to find out if our message is, is having any kind of an impact. But quite honestly, it's hard. Um, yeah. We had some great PowerPoint slides that we built, and there were stoplight charts and all kinds of different you know, ways of depicting this. But at the end of the day, um, you just you, you made the point I was going to make is it's inside the mind of the adversary where we are not. We are not inside Kim Jong-un's head. We're not inside President Xi or Putin's head. Um, so what we tried to do is is look at how are they messaging us back? So are the Russian road mobiles um, out of garrison more or less than historical norms? Are, are the North Koreans doing more or less testing? Are the Chinese doing whatever they're doing? So we, what we tried to do is kind of, uh, it's, it's really squishy math. There's not a lot of really solid metrics that you can measure and then determine whether or not you've achieved your objective in deterrence. Yeah, that's a great point. It's one of the more challenging things, I think, is given that it's ultimately a question of psychology and understanding psychology, that's a really difficult thing to do, especially when you can't do, you know, experiments, you know, in the building. So mm -hmm. now, now a second question, you've had an interesting career. So you started out as an air defender and then you moved to an FA-40, a space ops guy. So you've seen sort of from the ground to space, and as you think about, I, I've sort of been looking at, and I give this brief on deterrence, and I talk about deterrence writ large, nuclear, space, and cyber. And space and cyber, as we think about trying to deter across domains, sort of have a different approach than traditional nuclear deterrence. And one of the main things I see as we talk about space deterrence is resiliency and that we can eff effectively achieve deterrence by denial by virtue of demonstrating that if you take out a satellite, we'll be resilient. And so therefore you say, well, it's not even worth the effort. How do you see deterrence in space sort of shaking out in the years ahead? What do you think might be the most effective approaches? Because the, the Chinese have said, and you know this well because you participated in the effort to message them, how, what do you think might be effective? Um, well, resilience is a big one. Um, and we have to completely, and, and this is actually underway right now, we have to completely re-architect um, how we do space. And what I mean by that is in the past, we thought space was a benign environment. So we built these extraordinary big shiny satellites that were really capable, could do a lot of stuff and we didn't think anybody could target them. That thinking changed, and then we realized, so our, our adversaries watch us, and over time, space has given the U.S. military an asymmetric advantage, um, and our, our adversaries realize that, but they also realize that could be an Achilles heel because we really rely heavily on space, uh, space assets now and space capabilities. So how do you deter them? Well, You've got to make the architecture more resilient. You've got to make their their targeting calculus more difficult. And there's a multitude of ways of doing that. Disaggregating these satellites instead of one big, shiny, juicy target, you put up 20 smaller ones, and then that they've got to target all of them. You can look at hosting on commercial payloads. You can do 
you know, there's a lot of sneaky things that we can do that I can't talk about that we were working through uh, at the time I was at Stratcom. So it's it's very difficult. Um, and then there's 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 a kind of a diplomatic angle to it um, when you talk about um, offensive counter space. So the example you gave, um, the, the burnt frost being messaging. I, I can tell you, um, so in 2007, the Chinese shot down their satellite and created a hell of a mess in low Earth orbit. Um, and it's still a problem today. Some of that debris is still up there. Um, we, we were extremely careful about how we did burnt frost so that we didn't create a debris problem and in fact, I think it was after about 90 days, there wasn't anything left that was detectable by radar in orbit. It, all, it had all burned in. So we were trying to demonstrate to, you know, other nations how to be good stewards of the shared um, low Earth orbit space that we all occupy. Um, so there, there's, there's kind of a, a multitude of angles that you have to work through. But a lot of it was, um, it was policy kinds of things. So what can we do? What can't we do? What can we do for messaging? And, you know, the age-old problem that you have in deterrence is what do you show the adversary to deter them, yet what do you hold in reserve and not show them and keep classified? And one of the, one of the biggest challenges that we had in the space world is everything is way overclassified, in my view. And that was a real problem. Um, there was a lot, almost everything to do with space was uh, was sapped or and or it was no foreign, so we couldn't share it with our allies, and so it makes it really hard to message when all this stuff is is behind the green door in a in a vault, and you can't talk about it. Um, additionally, on the on the policy side, I, I kind of mentioned earlier we were working through um, what does hostile intent look like in space. So, you know, we've got rules of the road at sea. So, you know, if a Navy ship comes in contact with somebody, there's, there's rules and there's hostile intent. Uh, but how do, you, how do you extend that into space? What does it look like if you've got a, um, an inspector satellite from country A cruising around one of ours looking at it and then they get a little bit too close? What is too close? Nobody could define that. So we had all kinds of lawyers, and um, I was working with the policy guys at the NRO trying to figure out, all right, what would make you guys nervous with one of your birds if they got within X number of kilometers of you? So it was really complicated uh, trying to figure out how, the, how you package that all together into a coherent message that will deter an adversary. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, you know, it's, it's that time in the show where we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back. We're talking with Greg Bowen, and we're going to talk about the recently released Missile Defense Review when we get back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit. Come join NucleCast at the Summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the NucleCast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount 
on the Nuclecast website at anwadeter.org slash Nuclecast. Okay, and we're back, and we're joined by Brigadier General Retired Greg Bowen. Now, before the break, we talked a lot about deterrence in your time at, at STRATCOM. But now I want to shift and talk about the recently released Missile Defense Review. So as an air defender and a space guy, this is an area you know well. As you think about the Missile Defense Review and missile defenses, you know, moving forward, what are some of your major thoughts and your takeaway about where we are and where we're going? Well, first, um, we have to acknowledge the fact that we are never going to have enough missile defense. Um, excuse me. The the demand signals that I used to see at STRATCOM, so STRATCOM um, was kind of the adjudicator between the geographic combatant commands on, on missile defense assets that they wanted in their theater, and the requests from the combatant commands always way outstripped the supply. So we had to make some hard decisions on prioritization and who, who gets the last Patriot Battalion and who gets the last FAB battery type of thing. So I think that the, the department has recognized that um, – Missile defense is is really a growth industry, particularly in the Indo-PACOM theater, um, where the Chinese have uh, all kinds of missiles that can hold us at risk uh, quite quite a ways out. So I think they've they, they've internalized that. Um, we don't have to fight that fight anymore. For a number of years, we had to we had to convince the the Pentagon that hey, th- this stuff is really important, and missile defense wasn't really sexy. You know, they didn't want to spend money on it. It was also um, a little bit uh, political, and I think nowadays, um, thankfully, missile defense really has a lot of bipartisan support. So I was I was happy to see that. I I, I understand where they're trying to go. Um, I think they they stopped a little short of of where they needed to go. Um, and you know I hate to I hate to quote. Uh, I think it was Sun Tzu. I've read Sun Tzu and Clausewitz and all that stuff, and I, I've done my best to forget it, but something to the effect of he who defends everywhere defends nowhere. Mm-hmm. So you're never going to have enough. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you pick where you put your limited assets? So I think they've worked through that. Um, one, one thing I, I was left a little bit wanting was um, on the test side of things. And um, – we have unfortunately, when I say we, uh, I mean the department and, and the kind of the country, I guess, as a whole, has become really risk averse on on testing. Um, back in the '60s, you know, think about the early space program, um, and the one that comes to mind to, uh, for me is Corona, uh, the the first spy satellite that we tried to put up. Well, twelve of the first thirteen launches failed, but they kept trying, and the thirteenth sure. one worked. Nowadays, what happens is um, we do this testing, and unless it is perfect on the first try, they the the missile defense agency or the services, whoever's doing the testing, they get skewered yeah. in the press. They get skewered on Capitol Hill, and I get it. I mean, these tests are expensive, but we learn so much from our failures. You know, we may we may do an intercept test, and it doesn't work, but there were maybe 275 test objectives, and we we nailed 274 of them and learned a ton. That, in my mind, is a successful test. But in the press or on, on the Hill, it was a failure. And, and I just don't understand that. We 
we need to press the envelope. Uh, and as an operator, I need to know where the weapon system breaks. Okay, I need to know what it will and what it won't do, and we need to test it to failure. And I think there, there needs to be a mindset change in the building on how we do missile defense testing, and it needs to be a lot more robust. So that was kind of a, a summary of my thoughts on it. Yeah, this is a, an issue that I was having some discussions with other folks uh, just yesterday about this idea of the risk-averse sort of zero-defect culture that we have across the, the services in particular, and then in DOD writ large, where, you know, you take no risk because, and in some respects, when you have a, a JAG officer over your shoulder, their incentive is to say no and to tell you to avoid the risk. But, you know, our success is going to be from risk-taking. And the, one of the big questions I have is how do you get to a culture where you've gone from, you know, you had big failures, but you learned and you grew and then you were successful to a take no risk culture because risk, you know, like you said, you're, you're in the media. Then you have to, you know, you're testifying on Capitol Hill, which is televised, you know, and then because everything is on a 24 hour news cycle and there's constant demand for content that, you know, you have a serve, you have service cultures that are risk, highly risk averse cultures. And, but you got to take risks and you got to fail. It's a challenge. It's a almost, you know, it's a very difficult challenge. And I'm not quite sure how to fix that challenge. Yeah. I, I, I don't think a guy like uh, Bernard Schriever would have survived in this current environment. Um, going as fast as he did in, in, in the development side of ICBMs and, and the space stuff. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what the answer is either. Um, we've got to get our political leadership on board, and they have to understand that just because a test didn't meet all of its objectives, we didn't just waste a couple hundred million dollars. We've got reams of data we learned. These weapon systems are so complex. Uh, there's unforeseen things, and, and there's some really smart people working on them. I've, I've worked with, no kidding, rocket scientists. That's what they do. And But if you look at, at the complexity of these things, it's just mind-boggling. And there's going to be problems, and that's you find them by testing. I don't want to find a limitation on a weapon system the first time we got to fire it in anger. That's not the time to find out that something doesn't work. We yeah. need to find out ahead of time. Yeah, that's a good point. The, testing the failure. I mean, that's exactly what we're – so as you think about – missile defenses and their role in deterrence, how do you see them contributing to deterrence? Um, so that's interesting. Um, when I was in the war college, uh, gosh, 12 years ago now, I wrote my final paper, my, my research project, on the impact of, of missile defense on strategic deterrence. And this was back at a time when nobody was talking about deterrence because the Cold War was over and but it had always been something that interested me. So I started thinking about it at that time. And what, what precipitated it was um, we were very careful. I, I was on uh, GMD, ground-based ground mid-course defense. Uh, so I was the brigade commander. And there was a lot of discussion at that time about how big do we want to make this GMD system, and currently we've got 44 interceptors um, in the ground between Fort Greeley and Vandenberg, and is that the right number in, in today's environment? I would argue no, but 
one of the things that they taught us at the War College was this this concept of um, a uh, security dilemma, right? And and what I was the, the whole purpose of my my thought experiment with this was if we make missile defense larger, are we going to create a security dilemma for somebody else that's going to cause them to build more missiles, and then we're going to we're going to get into this tit for tat arms race kind of thing? So what is the right size? And how does how does missile defense impact the overall deterrence um, equation? And so, long story short, um, I think it has a definite role in deterrence from the perspective of denying an adversary um, whatever it is that they're trying to do, de denying the benefit because we have an active defense. But the discussion at the time was this, and we were very clear in our messaging that you know GMD was only aimed at rogue nations, North Korea and, and others. Um, and if you did the math, uh, it, it was absolutely no impact from a Russian or Chinese perspective. Um, but it was funny because I, we, um, we hosted a Russian delegation. I didn't host them. The vice chairman um, actually brought them out there, but uh, it's Shriver Air Force Base, and that's where we have the operational node for the GMD Brigade. And we, we brought the Russians in and, and let them see it. And they were just convinced that we were um, we were getting ready to shoot down their missiles, and um, it, it it just made no sense to me because they had several hundred, and, and at that time we had about thirty interceptors. You know, you do the math; it's it just doesn't work. Um, and I I told them we we and this is absolutely true. We did have training scenarios with Russian launches, but it was only Russian space launches. Because our crews would see those on their system, and they needed to know what they look like. So we never had a single training scenario where there were, you know, right. 400 coming over the pole. We didn't play that game. But we needed to understand what, uh, because there were some Russian launches on certain azimuths that would actually throw a threat fan over the U.S. And, you know, that they needed to understand, you know, what that looked like. So it, it but it's, it's uh, missile defense definitely has a role from a denial perspective in deterrence. Uh, but the question is, how, how big do you make it? Yeah, that, that is a good, it, it's a, you know, it's an important question. And I guess the, the, where I've come down is I'm always open to an arms race because I think we can always win it. And so therefore, and I tend to agree more with Herman Kahn than with Schelling. So I, I wonder if we're at a point where, you know, in the 1960s, 50s, and 60s, the largest command in the Air Force was Air Defense Command, which was, you know, designed to prevent Russian bombers from attacking the U.S. And so I wonder if there is an analogy, you know, an effective analogy, not all analogies are good, where we might be at a point where we need to have a strong missile defense for the United States and worry less about strategic stability because at least as far as I can tell, I've never seen anybody truly define strategic stability for me. Uh, the only thing I've ever seen folks say about strategic stability is anything I don't like is destabilizing. Anything I do like is stabilizing. <laughs> That's the best definition yeah. I've ever gotten. So I wonder if, we should be, you know, more active in trying to defend. Uh, if the technology is not mature, if it's, 
you know, incredibly expensive for, you know, a low prob a low PK of an adversary asset. I get that. But if we've got good systems, should we not be more active in defending, you know, our assets, whether it's cities or whether it's, you know, ICBM fields or whatever we may think we need to defend? Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. And I am also a fan of Khan. Um, when I was reading deterrence theory at first, I'd never heard of him. And he made a lot of sense to me. So I, I'm on uh, on that side of the fence. Uh, one of the... One of the arguments that I used to make, um, and, and I'm 100% I'm in agreement with you, but one of the arguments I used to make to people when they talked about, well, this missile defense stuff is so expensive, um, I asked them a, a question, and that is, what was the economic impact of 9-11 on the United States? It was huge. That was a couple of airplanes. Now imagine somebody dropping a nuke on L.A. or San Francisco or, you know, pick your big city. Just one, and tell me what the economic impact of that would be, and and then tell me why why is why is missile defense too expensive? It's like you don't you don't live in a fancy house and not have homeowners insurance, right? That's that's part of our insurance policy, along with our nuclear uh, weapons. That's that's our nation's you know, homeowners insurance, if you will. So, um, absolutely, do we need more? Yes. the The problem is. Um, it's become more complex because you've got ballistic threats, you've got cruise missiles, you've got now hypersonics, and all three of those require different solutions. And um, very quickly, you can get into a situation where it's just going to become unaffordable, or we're going to have to really pick and choose what are we going to defend? And then how do you tell the people in Kansas, we're not going to defend them, we're going to defend, you know, California or, or whatever. Um, so it's, it, it, it's, it's complicated. Oh, no question. No question. So we're, we're now approaching the end of the show and I want to, I would ask you to offer our listeners sort of a, what is the big takeaway on, in terms of missile defenses and in terms of what they should know and how they should think about missile defenses in the future. And just, this this missile challenge that seems to be because the Russians and the Chinese are, are, are their nuclear modernization programs are heavily focused on missiles, and so missiles are obviously important to our adversaries. So, what's the big takeaway for the listeners on today's episode of Nuclecast? Um, I think the big takeaway is that missile defense is an integral part of integrated deterrence. It, it is. It is very, very important. I think it's foundational. Um, and secondly, the, the second takeaway is we no longer hold a decisive technical advantage um, like we have. Our adversaries, we, we're, we're now looking at potentially conflict with two peer or near-peer adversaries. Um, we haven't had to deal with that before. And the, the amount of technological development that I've seen both from the Russian side, but more particularly from the Chinese. And I, I'm sure the Chinese stole most of what they've got from us, but that's another, probably another podcast. Um, is that why they're, we, we've got is that why their stealth aircraft and their drones look exactly like ours? Cause they stole it. Who would have thought? I, 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 I can't, I, I can't confirm or deny that cause I still have an active security clearance, but anyway, uh, <laughs> 
we digress. Um, so I, we've got a couple of sophisticated adversaries to deal with. Um, the Russian army has way underperformed in the Ukraine. However, comma, they still have a whole lot of capability on the strategic side that we cannot ignore. The Chinese are are in the midst of this strategic breakout, and their stuff is good, um, but they have no experience. They've got a bunch of gear and a bunch of people, but can they fight? That's another question. Um, so I think the, the whole uh, deterrence equation is becoming a lot more complex, and I think we need as a nation to, to really focus on, on developing those, those breakthrough technologies, doing, doing really meaningful testing and deploying weapon systems in a way that makes sense. All right. There you have it, everybody. Brigadier General Retired Greg Bowen joining us on Nuclecast. Thanks for being here. We appreciate your thoughts. Thanks, Adam. It was a pleasure. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the show. We will see you next time. Hey, we just had a great conversation with Brigadier General Retired Greg Bowen. Uh, Greg spent time at Stratcom. He was an air defender, a space guy, and understands missile defenses. And it's it was really good to talk about missile defenses, particularly in the wake of the recently released Missile Defense Review, and to see Greg's thoughts on where missile defense is going. And so that was informative. You know, it's it's one of these things where here at Nuclecast, we don't just talk about uh, deterrence or nuclear weapons. We talk about nuclear power and we've talked about drones and we're talking about missile defenses because all of these things have a role in the defense of the nation and the deterrence of our our adversaries. So it was a great talk. I enjoyed it.